At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of Proverbs. And our sermon text this morning is going to be Proverbs 17, verse 24, but we are going to have an additional reading from Proverbs chapter 8. So let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Proverbs chapter 8. We'll be reading the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. As we see here, the wisdom of God, wisdom personified, and thinking in terms of what we know as New Testament saints, this is wisdom incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen to the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. Does not wisdom cry out, and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill, beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things, for my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mine, and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice, that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet He had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, 
When He prepared the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, when He established the clouds above, when He strengthened the fountains of the deep, when He assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him as a master craftsman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in His inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Now therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. Amen. Let's turn to chapter 17 and verse 24 of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17, verse 24. Once again, this is the Word of God. Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 24, where we read these words from the pen of Solomon. Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Here we find Solomon authoring yet another of his many proverbs, which by the Holy Spirit's Inspiration and by the providence of God has been placed in our Bibles and preserved for us to consider this morning. Solomon, of course, was the king of Israel, the son of David, who dwelt in Jerusalem. Solomon is a type of Christ, who is ultimately the son of David, David's greater son. Solomon's prosperity prefigures the advance of the kingdom of Christ to all nations. Solomon's wisdom is but a mere foreshadowing, a foretaste of the One who is greater than Solomon, even the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Scriptures repeatedly refer to as wisdom itself. He is unto us, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, He is unto us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Elsewhere in the Corinthian epistles, Paul says that Christ is the, the wisdom of God and the power of God. He is the Word of God, the, the Word incarnate who tabernacled among us, bringing God's wisdom into this world in a way that far exceeded the wisdom 
of Solomon. And Christ establishes His heavenly Jerusalem of which the footstool is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. Now Solomon is dwelling in Jerusalem. His palace is in Jerusalem. The temple which he helped to build is in Jerusalem. The Word of God is preached and proclaimed in Jerusalem. The ordinances of worship that God had established at the temple are being administered day after day after day, Sabbath after Sabbath, new moon after new moon, festal season after festal season, year by year there in Jerusalem. The Word of God, the ordinances of God, the means of grace and the truth and wisdom of God's plan of salvation and of His commandments. All these things are being taught and conveyed through word and ordinance there in Jerusalem. And Solomon is well aware of it. And so as he writes the book of Proverbs, from the outset, he reminds the people of God that wisdom is not silent. Wisdom is not far away. The Word of God, the law of God, the Word of faith that Paul preached is very near in our hearts, on our lips. The same was true for the Israelites, the Jews in Jerusalem. Wisdom, chapter 1, verse 20, calls aloud outside. God's truth, God's law, God's promises of salvation are front and center. They're right before their very eyes. They're right there in their own hearing. Wisdom is crying aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. A visible testimony among God's visible people. And it's unmistakable. It's unavoidable. God's truth, God's wisdom confronts God's people on a daily basis. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? Goes on, turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my Spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. So much for the people that think the Old Testament saints didn't have the Holy Spirit. God is proclaiming His Gospel through His Word and through His ordinances. Even in the Old Testament. And Solomon is saying if you turn, if you repent, if you believe and accept the Lord Jesus Christ who is yet to come, if you accept God's promise of a coming Savior, then you will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I will pour out My Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding and counsel and of the fear of the Lord. I'll pour Him out and I'll make My ways known to you. And so, wisdom is confronting the people. You see it in the passage we read, chapter 8. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out in the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors, to you, O men, I call. And my voice is to the sons of men. You simple ones. And so she's proclaiming to the sons of Adam, fallen sinners who are now confronted with the law and with the Gospel, even with the wisdom of God through His Word and through His ordinances. Wisdom is seen and heard 
throughout the city of Jerusalem to the people of God. And chapter 8 tells us that, in fact, this wisdom is wisdom personified. It's not just principles of wisdom, principles of ethics and truth and doctrine and, uh, and religion, but wisdom is personified. Of course, wisdom takes on uh, the, the, the feminine form here, but we should not be confused about that. That's a matter of the grammatical construction. That's a matter of the imagery of this passage. But in reality, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the embodiment of God's wisdom. Jesus compares himself to a hen gathering her chickens. You know, he doesn't say, I'm the rooster. He says, I'm the hen. Jesus has no problem using this kind of significant imagery to convey who he is and what he does. Because in his deity, and in some sense, in his incarnation, he transcends so many of our categories. But here is Jesus, the wisdom of God. And you can see it very clearly, verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way. That's strong language. Jehovah is eternal. Uh, he, He never had a beginning, but when we think of His beginning, we're thinking of His eternal self origin. God is without beginning. And so when we think of His beginning, when we think of Him as the Ancient of Days, when we think of the the beginning of God, what we're thinking of is eternity past. As long as God has existed from the beginning, the Lord possessed me. This is the only begotten Son of God. The Father has His Son. The Son has His Father. And, and, And so you have this relationship of mutual indwelling, mutual possession. The Lord, Jehovah, possessed me at the beginning of His way. There's an eternal unity and mutual possession here. Before His works of old. This is before God made the world. Before there was any creation, God the Father and God the Son, His Word and wisdom, dwelt together in an eternal fellowship of love as Uh, persons of the Trinity. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. This is the language of generation. This is the eternal generation of the Son of God who is in the bosom of the Father. Not that it happened at a particular time and the Father predates the Son. Not at all. It's an eternal begetting, an eternal generation. The father can't be a father without a son. The son can't be a son without a father. There's a a mutual um, relationship here that is eternal, that is equal in power and glory, coextensive in every way. And this is beyond our comprehension, but the Bible reveals it to us. God's Word, God's wisdom, God's Son, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture here. And the, the, the amazing thing is that John chapter 1 tells us that this word of wisdom in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in whom are all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that He dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Well, this wisdom of Christ who is yet to come is a message for the people 
to hear and heed. A message of life and death. It's an urgent message. It's a message of truth and error. It's a message that's very simple and very straightforward. A message of wisdom versus folly. Righteousness versus unrighteousness. A message of death and eternity, heaven and hell, good and evil. It's an unmistakable message. There's no way to confuse it. There's no way to miss it. It's, it's light and darkness. It's, it's these two realities. These two paths. One to eternal life, the other to eternal destruction. And this message that is urgently proclaimed is received in different ways by different people. And there are two fundamental responses. You have the wise man or woman who were told in the passages we read, we don't have to go back and look at all the verses, but we're told that the wise person listens to the voice of wisdom, takes in the message, and looks and pays attention and understands and believes and obeys. And we're told, blessed, verse 34, Blessed is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. So the wise response is to cherish this message of wisdom. It becomes precious in the sight of the one who is wise. More precious than gold or silver or rubies or anything in this life The true believer, the wise man or woman, is one who is waiting daily and watching at the gates of the Lord Jesus Christ by way of the Word of God, privately, publicly, all of the ordinances of God, the means of grace, prayer, singing psalms, reading and preaching of God's Word, all of these methods of coming into contact with God's wisdom. The the believer, the wise man or woman, is daily seeking and searching at those gates. Can't get enough. Not content to say, well, I've believed the Gospel and then go on their merry way in a worldly lifestyle, but daily at the gates of the Word of God and the wisdom of God. Not so the fool. The fool laughs. The fool mocks. The fool despises. In other words, considers it to be an unimportant thing. Not worthy of his or her time. The fool rejects this message of wisdom. The fool is willfully ignorant and we're told in our sermon text for this morning that the fool, in a sense more than anything else, is distracted. Distracted. The wise person of understanding, we're told in our text, wisdom is in the sight of that person. Wisdom is before the face of To translate that literally, wisdom is before the face of one who has understanding. Before their face, they're seeking it, they're searching it, they can't get enough of it, they're daily at the gates, they want more of it. They're they're just meditating on God's law day and night. The wisdom that confronts them right there in their experience, they welcome that and they are drawn into that. But we're told that the eyes of a fool... The eyes of a fool that can't help but see wisdom. His ears can't help but hear wisdom. He's being confronted front and center right before his very face again and again and again. But the eyes of a fool are not setting and and fixing themselves upon the wisdom of God. Instead, the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. He's daydreaming. Uh, Nothing 
could be further from his mind than the truth that confronts him before his very face. He's daydreaming on things that are totally irrelevant, things that are neither here nor there, the ends of the earth. Far removed from the pressing urgency of his own situation and of his own soul. In other words, we can say from this text that the fool is distracted from what is most important by what is ultimately irrelevant to his situation. The fool is distracted from what is most important by what is ultimately irrelevant to his situation. Well, let's think some more about who we're speaking of here when we think of the fool. Who is the fool? We're told the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. What kind of fool are we thinking of here? Are we thinking of the class clown? Someone who tells a lot of jokes and fools around. That's not the idea here. Although that could be the case, that that person is a fool in the biblical sense. But uh, in the biblical sense, the fool is either someone who is unconverted or someone who is backsliding from the truth. It is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. The fool, either intellectually or practically, either throughout the course of his life or in a certain season of his life, lives and acts as if there is no God. That can be an unconverted person. There's the fool in the ultimate sense. Someone who believes in their heart, at, a pra- at least at a practical level, that there's no God. They're not thinking about God. God is not in all their thoughts. They're not conscious of their own death, their own eternity, of the judgment of God, or if they are, they've embraced a God of their own devices, a false God, a false religion of some kind or another. Uh, but they don't truly believe in the true God of the Bible. They're unconverted. They're lost and dying in their sin. They're headed for hell. But it can also be the case that there are fools among the people of God. There can be those who are backsliding. You think of the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Now in that case, you have ten members of the visible church portrayed as virgins awaiting the bridegroom. And you have the five foolish virgins who are unconverted. And the doors of heaven are slammed shut at the last day because there's no oil in their lamps. There's no true presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And there's no true faith and repentance. Uh, But it's not only the foolish, unconverted virgins that that fell asleep in that parable. It's also the wise virgins. Even those who are wise unto salvation fell asleep in waiting for the bridegroom. And so even those who are wise unto salvation through saving faith in Christ can at times and during various seasons, they they can make individual decisions that are foolish. They can uh, go a week's time, a year's time, living as if there's no God in principle, forgetting God days without number, backsliding in their Christian life. The fool. So this has relevance for all of us. If you're outside of Christ, this text is confronting you to leave behind the folly of unbelief. If you are a believer, this text is confronting you to examine yourself and to leave behind the folly of a lukewarm Christian life. The fool. Secondly, 
We've said that the fool is distracted from what is most important by what is ultimately irrelevant to his situation. Well, what is the fool's situation? What is the fool's situation? Well, the fool, fundamentally and ultimately, uh, his situation involves many factors that, I mean, we, we could look at so many different circumstances and situations among those who are either unconverted or backsliding, but thinking here of, of especially the unconverted, we know that fundamentally the unconverted fool is guilty of sin against God. There is no one, says Solomon, who does not sin. Paul says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the unconverted fool is living in the guilt of his or her own sin. That is the situation. Guilty and polluted and defiled by sin. Spiritually dead and depraved. Blinded to the glory of the Gospel. Deaf to the sound of the voice of Christ. Poor, wretched, blind, naked. Divested of any hope of eternal life. The the unconverted fool has a never-dying soul and an ever-dying body and is on a collision course with eternal misery. Eternal misery. There were people, even in the early church, to whom Jesus writes in the book of Revelation, that failed to understand their situation. Revelation 3, verse 17, the church in Laodicea. He says, because you say, I am rich, I become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. How's that for a pep talk? You see, the the Jesus of the Bible is so different than the pop culture Jesus that people want to put on bumper stickers and t-shirts. Jesus is saying, here's what you need to understand, visible church members, not even speaking to the watching world outside the church, but he's saying, you've become lazy, you've become uh, engrossed in worldly pleasures, you've become proud, you think you're rich, you've got comfort, ease, and convenience, you're wealthy, you don't have need of anything, but he says you don't understand your situation. Many of these people are unconverted people in the church who are happy that they have an easy lifestyle. He says, you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so he says, as wisdom, he speaks to them as the wisdom of God, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. The Lord Jesus Christ confronts the unconverted fool. But also in Laodicea, no doubt, many, if not most of the people that He's confronting were simply backsliding believers. Those who were wise unto salvation, but those who in some sense, in terms of their backsliding and their lukewarm Christian life, Their Christian life had become wretched and miserable. To some extent, they had become poor and blind and naked and vulnerable to the attacks of the evil. They're not putting on the armor of God. They're naked. They're vulnerable. 
They're not walking closely with the Lord and they're self-satisfied in their earthly situation, but they don't understand their eternal spiritual situation. Dear believer, you have limited time on this earth. Your death is coming. It's coming. It's indisputable. And you have a limited time to seek the Lord. Now we emphasize that with unconverted people. You have a limited time to seek the Lord and to repent and to come to Christ and to have your sins forgiven. But even as believers, we have limited time to seek Him, to serve Him, to store up heavenly treasure. Limited time to bear witness to our friends, our loved ones who need to hear the truth. Limited time to raise our children in the knowledge of Christ. We have a limited time to do the things that are most significant. If you were to die today, would you be ready? Would you be content with your Christian life, with your use of the opportunities and the time and the strength and energy that God has given you? Would you be ready to give an account? This is my Christian life. You've saved me. I've been saved for this many years. This is my prayer life. This is my witness to others. This is my influence on my children. This is my influence on the people around me. This is my walk with Christ daily. Are you ready to give an account for that? Because you have a limited time to live the Christian life. And time's up. And, and you're, you're going to have to give an account. There's an urgency to the situation of unconverted and converted fools alike. Really, for all of us. Well, we said the fool is distracted from what is most important. For his situation. What's the most important thing for our situation? It is wisdom incarnate. It is Christ. It is the word and wisdom of God Himself, who is unto us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Christ is all in all. He gives us everything. And getting back to Proverbs chapter 8, we're told in verse 17. Those who seek Me diligently will find Me. So Christ and His wisdom are there. We can even say here, right now. Christ is willing to receive all who come to Him. All who diligently seek Him will receive His wisdom. Will be wise unto salvation through Christ. Yes, we understand that's a work of the Holy Spirit that must take place. But you don't wait till you feel the Spirit to seek the wisdom. You hear the invitation to seek the wisdom and you seek the wisdom. And then in the rearview mirror, having sought and obtained the wisdom, you say, well, God must have regenerated me or God must have revived my Christian life. And in the rearview mirror, you can give glory to God. But you don't wait to feel the Spirit moving you to seek the wisdom. The wisdom is there. And it's urgent that you would seek it diligently with all of your heart. That you would be daily at His gates. That you would seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and allow all of these other concerns to to play second fiddle to your pursuit of wisdom. Wisdom of who God is. Wisdom concerning what God requires in His law. Wisdom concerning salvation. The forgiveness of sins. Wisdom concerning the promises of God. The joy of salvation. The Christian life. Wisdom 
for every aspect of your life, of your family, of your vocation. There's a blueprint in the Word of God. The God who made you has an instruction manual that He has given to mankind and preserved it and placed it in our laps. It is the Bible. God's wisdom. And the the theme running throughout the Bible is God's wisdom personified and incarnated, even Christ Himself. And so you need to seek these things first. It's most crucial, most important in terms of the triage of the things in your life that need most immediate attention, listen to Colossians 3 verse 1. And speaking here especially to believers, it really challenges all of us. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Not setting your eyes on things on the earth. Not even on the ends of the earth, but setting your eyes on things above where Christ Himself is seated. For you died. This is true of every believer. You died. Your earthly, fleshly self is gone. Dead forever. You're a new creature in Christ. You died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It is most urgent to seek Him, to look to Him, to cling to Him, and by faith to be seated with Him, communing with Him. That is what is most urgent and most important. You cannot... You cannot repent and believe after your death. You cannot repent and believe after the return of Christ. There's an urgency right here and right now. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Paul says, We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. The people who rule and reign in our society, whether by way of politics or sports or entertainment or culture, the people that rule the roost are coming to nothing apart from Jesus Christ. All of their influence, all of their beauty, everything that they pride themselves in, it is all going to be dust and ashes. That's not the wisdom we need to be seeking. He says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Look to those things. When you look to those things, the things of this world become insignificant. They become light and momentary. Whether it's the treasures and pleasures of this world, the things that, that we need to be seeking. Everybody say, you need, to, you need this and you need that and you have to have this. Listen, it becomes momentary and fleeting. And even the afflictions of this life, according to Paul, are momentary light afflictions compared to that eternal weight of of glory. And so every believer, every mature believer understands the mature wisdom of God that looks to what is most important, most crucial, 
and most enduring and not to the fleeting fancies of this life and of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says that our eyes ought not to be on the earth or on the ends of the earth, on the visible things of this life. But he says that Verse 18, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. But you see, the fool is distracted from these most vital and important matters. He's distracted. Uh, his eyes and his ears are elsewhere than, from the, than in terms of just looking at the wisdom that stands right in front of his face. He doesn't consider it. Uh, He hears without hearing. He sees without perceiving. He's present. He may even give lip service, but his heart and mind are far from the wisdom of God. His eyes are on the ends of the earth. He's daydreaming. Proverbs 23, verse 31 Listen to the eyes of the fool. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? You see, God has given wine for the joy and gladness of mankind, but we abuse these things. And we look even at the the finest pleasures that God bestows upon us, and we turn to them, we look upon them, we obsess over them, we linger long at them and, and we're, we're looking at these pleasures like that red wine in the glass and it's sparkling and all of a sudden we're distracted and we're bit by the serpent and we're pummeled and pounded by sin and misery, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we don't even feel the blows. We don't even respond. We're completely oblivious and unaware that our lives are being destroyed and ruined all the while we're distracted by the pleasures and cares of this life. And ultimately, those things are irrelevant compared to this eternal weight of glory. Ultimately, these pleasures and treasures of this life, even things that are good in themselves and have a place in a mature and balanced Christian life, These things, when set in opposition to the wisdom of God, these things, when they keep us from being daily at His gates, but instead we're concerned with all these other things, these things become ultimately irrelevant. They become like those things at the ends of the earth. In fact, oftentimes as Christians, we've got our phones We're plugged into media, social media, and rather than examining our own selves, our own lives, concerning ourselves with our own sphere of influence, with our own children, with our own marriage, with our own family, we're clicking around on the internet concerned with what's happening all the way across the country in Washington, D.C., or concerned with what's happening all the way across the world. I'm not saying we should... Uh, we should refuse to consider what's happening in the world. But the point is, we can be so focused on the ends of the earth 
and we're worried about this, that, or the other bit of news that just came out. And we're not even concerned with our own soul and our own children and our own eternity. And we become distracted by things that are ultimately distant and irrelevant and comparatively trivial. But even some of the most important things in earthly life, again, when they compete with the wisdom of God for our attention, our allegiance, our desires, we have to understand um, that they become idols. They become vanity, money, retirement, academics, career, physical health, physical appearance, pleasure, convenience, comfort, ease of life, appetites of food and sex, houses, cars, vacations, honor, reputation, sports, entertainment, hobbies, uh, video games, technology, televisions, text messages, politics. Uh, It's not that these things are ultimately not important or have no place in the Christian life, my friends, but when they take the place of wisdom, when someone asks you, how's your Bible reading? How's your in-depth study of God's Word going every single day, daily at His gates? How's your prayer life? How's your family worship? And you give an answer that is unsatisfying to yourself and perhaps to the person who asked you, okay, then you need, if that's the case, you need to examine yourself and say, well, am I spending myself and being spent on these other aspects of life that compared to the wisdom of God for my soul and for my spiritual life and for my marriage and for my family and for my church and for all these things that will endure forever, am I spending myself on vanity? Things that are comparatively insignificant and irrelevant to my eternal destiny and to God's calling for my life, an upward calling into heavenly places. This this distraction is a deadly distraction. It turns our eyes on the lusts of this world that are passing away. The Apostle Paul tells us that even in areas of life that Paul himself believed were very important, we need to hold these things loosely in comparison to our relationship to Christ and to His Word. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Now Paul gives instruction for marriage. He gives instruction for the diligent stewardship of our resources. Paul gives instructions in all of these practical areas of life. Uh, He's not against the, the practical Christian life in vocation, six days of the week working. He's not against recreation and physical exercise, we could go to various passages. But the point is when these things begin to choke out the Word, to choke out our appetite for the wisdom of God, we're filling our bellies with these other things, and then here comes a feast of God's wisdom, and well, I'm, I'm, I'm full. I'm full. My stomach's full. 
My friends, when these things become more significant and desirable than God's Word and God's wisdom and God's Son in our lives, then they need, these weeds need to be pulled out. They need to be mortified. We need to cut out things that are distracting us from the well-being of our own soul. The fool is distracted from what is most important by what is ultimately irrelevant to his situation. Well, let's consider some application. What should we be fixing our eyes upon? Not distracted and daydreaming concerning the ends of the earth, but fix your eyes upon your own soul. What profit would it be for yourself if you gained the whole world, even to the ends of the earth? If you were Alexander the Great and and you conquered the world as it were, what value would it be for you eternally if you lose your own soul? That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. Consider and fix your eyes upon the reality of your own soul. The rich young ruler chose wealth over Christ, but at least he came to Jesus with a very important question. Good teacher, what must I do that I may have eternal life? There are many things that we are concerned about that are irrelevant to our eternal well-being, to our eternal destiny, to our eternal treasure in heaven. At least the rich young ruler among the unconverted, at least he came to Jesus and asked a question about his own soul and his own eternal destiny. It's a huge problem. People came to Jesus and said, you know, this is their one chance to speak to the Son of God, the wisdom of God incarnate there on the earth. They come to him face to face and they ask him to resolve a dispute about their inheritance with their brother. Okay? At least the rich young ruler had the sense to come and ask about his own soul and to be concerned for his own eternal destiny. Though he made the wrong choice, he asked the right question. And we need to be asking that question. We need to get to the point of the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4 where she's no longer asking all of these extraneous questions about where we should worship God, though they have, that question has its place. But eventually, she doesn't come to faith in Christ until she stops dealing with all these other things and focuses upon Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Messiah, who told her everything that she ever did. And she sought Him as her personal Savior from sin. That's when it clicked for her. And notice, she left her water pot behind. She might have come to the well thirsty, but by the time she's done speaking with Jesus about her own soul and her own life, she leaves it behind. She's unconcerned about it any longer. We're told by uh, Job, Job 23, verse 12, that Job considered the wisdom and the word from God's mouth as more necessary than his daily food. What must I do to be saved? That's the outcry we hear throughout the book of Acts. That's what... That's what we need to be doing. Thinking about ourselves. What must I do to be saved? How can I believe on Christ? How can I repent of my sins? How can I put to death the deeds of the body? Because my friend, this God, this Savior, this Gospel is not afar off at the ends of the earth. That's made clear in Deuteronomy chapter 30 which sets before us in similar fashion. 
life and death, blessing and cursing. And it reminds us that this word, this command to repent and believe, the law of God, the gospel of God, the wisdom of God, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea or uh, bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Wisdom lifts up her voice. If you seek the Lord Jesus Christ diligently, if you come to Him, He will save you. It's as simple and straightforward as that. So fix your eyes on your own soul. Secondly, fix your eyes upon your own sin. Uh, Hebrews 12, uh, the Apostle confronts the Hebrew Christians by saying that in contrast to Christ who obeyed unto the death of the cross, they had not yet shed their blood in resisting sin. They weren't yet taking it seriously enough to deny themselves with strenuous exertions to kill their sin, to root it out by the grace of God with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to have victory through the power of Christ over their sins. They're like someone who's diagnosed with cancer and and given a reasonable path forward to overcome and beat the cancer as it were, and they just ignore it. And they don't take those steps and they don't change their diet and they don't change their regimen and they die of cancer. You need to recognize your own sin, dear believer. Kill it or it will be killing you. You cannot be casual about your sin or it will destroy your life. You'll be like... Uh, you know, the people in Corinth who were struck dead. Yes, they fell asleep in Jesus, but their Christian life was destroyed by their sin. Consider and fix your eyes on the sin that so easily entangles you. Fix your eyes on your own duties and responsibilities in your family. Husbands, are you washing your wife and your children with water by the word? Is the eternal destiny of the members of your family your greatest priority in terms of the family? Is their spiritual health your top priority? Are you training your children to fear God by teaching and example and discipline exercised in love? If you're too busy for that, you're too busy. Cut something out. Regain that zeal for being a godly husband, father, wife, Mother, what about your mission field? There are people that are concerned with taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, but are they witnessing to their friends, to their family, to their local community? Uh, This is a problem in the church today. This is a huge problem in the church today. Uh, Our country is going to hell. And yes, we want to take the gospel of first importance to the ends of the earth. I'm not saying wait till America is Christianized to send missionaries. Let's send them now. But let's send people that are doing the work of ministry here, like John G. Payton, who's doing the ministry in the Sabbath school here, well, there in, uh, in uh, Glasgow, but, and then they send him to the New Hebrides 
That's the pattern. So let's get active here and now. You say, God's called me to the ministry. God's called me to be a missionary. Okay, let's get active here and now and start cutting our teeth on that ministry locally. I know many of you are doing that. I'm just reinforcing. That's why we do it that way. Don't be concerned about the end of the earth before you've learned how to be a good steward in the lesser, uh, more local responsibilities. Uh, Your existing situation. How can you serve God here and now? Stop thinking about how I need to get married. I need to do this. I need to get this job promotion. I I need to do this and that and I'm praying. And no, you need to think about right now What has God called you to do right now? If you're faithful now, pursuing the things you need to do now, then all of these future developments that you're looking for God to open this or that door, those things will come, but don't set your eyes on the ends of the earth before you focus on the wisdom that's before your face. What has God called you to do right now? And of course, that leads us to conclude with this. Fix your eyes upon your beloved We are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper this evening, God willing. And we have an opportunity to come into the presence of wisdom incarnate, into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and commune with Him as His bride, as His body. We have a great privilege, a great opportunity. And there are so many things that Satan will use or the flesh will use to distract us from the most important responsibility and even privilege we have this Sabbath afternoon, and that is to spend our time preparing to discern the Lord's body. We need to fix our eyes upon Christ. We need to look at Him. We need to look at ourselves. Yes, examine yourself. But you need to be fixing your eyes on Christ, meditating on the bread, meditating on the cup, Meditating on His broken body, His shed blood, the table of fellowship. Meditating on these things and thinking of the great salvation that Christ has purchased for you. And examining your relationship with Him and speaking to Him and hearing His voice and communing with wisdom. Yes, daily at His gates, but above all days today, watch at His gates. Wait at, the, at His doorpost. Look to your beloved and prepare to look upon the elements of the Lord's Supper and to discern His body and blood in them by faith. So that when you take the cup, you you really are taking the new covenant by faith. And when you drink the cup, you're really receiving the blood of Christ by faith. And when you take the bread and it's it's broken and you, you take your peace, you're receiving Christ and being filled with His righteousness afresh. Prepare to fix your eyes not upon the ends of the earth. We're going to be outside listening to the birds chirping and looking at the traffic or whatever's going on. No, fix your eyes upon Christ and discern the Lord's body through, through His Word this afternoon, through prayer and through meditation. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We give thanks for Your Word and for Your wisdom. We pray that You would give us such a heart, such a hunger and thirst that we would be daily at the gates of wisdom itself. That we would see the truth of what our Lord said, that wisdom 
is justified by all her children, by all her fruits. May we bring forth the fruits of that wisdom unto salvation. And may you give us the eyes to perceive and see and discern the Lord's body and the Lord's blood in the sacrament of His table. We pray in His name. Amen.